we'll continue our worship service with the scripture reading. The scripture is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Please pray with me. Dear Lord God, we thank you for just the, the wonderful celebration of baptism, Lord, and how that just confirms, Lord, who you are and what you've done in our life. As we continue to study Nehemiah, Lord, we trust that your Holy Spirit is working to illuminate your word to us, to guide us and show us who you are and to lead us to your truth. We give you all the praise and glory for who you are and what you give us, Lord, and what you've given the world through your son, Jesus Christ. We give you all the praise and glory in your son's name we pray. Amen. So over the past weeks and months, as we have been studying Nehemiah, we have seen this kind of tremendous kind of upward uh, kind of trajectory for the, uh, the book of Nehemiah. We've seen firstly, like in chapter 1, how Nehemiah was burdened by the plight of the Israelites in Jerusalem. He heard their plight, that they were in danger, that they needed help, their walls were broken. So he went there, he, he was overwhelmed, and he prayed, and then he felt God's calling. He got support from the king, he went to Jerusalem, and then he went through all, like against all odds, enemies, famine, their own sinfulness, they built the wall. And we've been studying that over these last weeks, of just how amazing it was that they were able to build that wall in the midst of all of the... Um, all of the things against them. And then over the past weeks, we've been talking about how as they rebuilt the wall, they actually re, kind of recommitted themselves to God. They confessed their sins to God. They joyfully worshiped. They recommitted themselves to God and God's covenant. They also then sought God's will and then worshiped God. And so we've been seeing this kind of high, uh, this this trajectory going higher and higher and more positive and more positive. And last week, we kind of ended on that high point where there was this amazing worship service where, where these two choirs of hundreds of people were circling around the walls of, of Jerusalem, and they were joyfully celebrating and thanking God for all that he's done. And it would have been great if the narrative could have just ended there. <laughs> At such a high point. I mean, we like happy endings. You know, we want things to end on a high point. But we see that Nehemiah does not do that. Chapter 13 that we're going to start reading this week and we'll continue reading uh, throughout uh, next week as well shows this long kind of descent. It goes from this high point in chapter 12 down to this very low point, possibly the lowest point that they were in uh, at the end of chapter 13. It, it got so bad 
that in the beginning, Nehemiah was overwhelmed with love for the Israelites. And at the end, he is literally pulling his hair out in frustration about them. And we can appreciate the realism of this passage. I mean, really, the realism of this passage, that it doesn't end on a high note, really is a, a, a guide to the reliability of Scripture. Because if Scripture was just about kind of, you know, trying to manipulate our emotions or trying to tell us something that's not true, they would only show us, you know, the high points, the good points. But Nehemiah does not spare the hard points and the dark points the moments of failure and frustration. And we see in this passage that he actually does it for a reason. He does it for a reason. Remember, in the very beginning, we talked about how Nehemiah was actually a report to the king of Persia. The whole book of Nehemiah that's in our Old Testament was originally this report that he's reporting back to the king of Persia. This is what's going on. These are the people that are helping. This is what's happening. And it was also read by all of the Jewish people in Persia in exile. So this last chapter, after all of the the upward progression of Nehemiah, serves as a warning. It serves as this warning to all of the readers of this book. And that means the ancient Israelites, and that means us as well. And the warning is about spiritual carelessness about being careless in our faith and what that kind of leads us to. You know, as I just mentioned, Israel was kind of like in this mountaintop of faith. And chapter 12 that we read last week, if you were with us, there is just, it was celebration, there was joy, there was thankfulness. Everything that should be happening in the Christian life was happening Uh, for the Israelites on that day. They felt God's presence and goodness. They were having a mountaintop experience. And I know for many of us, we've also had mountaintop experiences where we we know God is present. We feel God is here with us. Some of us, you know, in thinking about kind of Michael's experience of baptism, he had that moment of going, God is with me. I know it. I didn't know it before and I know it now. And some of us have not had that, that same experience of just like emotional, over, being overwhelmed enthusiasm. But we always, we have those mountaintop experiences when we know that, when we feel just like things are good. God is present. And I know if you believe in God, you've had those experiences. We all have had those moments where God confirms to us that he's real, that he's here, that he's working. But the problem with the mountaintop is we can't stay there. None of us who have ever experienced a mountaintop experience can stay there. I know for me, when I was a new Christian, I used to just like long for those moments of worship that I just felt like taken up by God's spirit, just felt so kind of into the worship and overwhelmed by it. And I would get frustrated when it didn't happen. And that's true of our faith in general. There's our times where there's confirmation and blessing. There are times when you read the Bible and it just opens up to you. It's like God's spirit is like, you know, speaking to you directly from the word. And then there are times when you open up the word and you're like, I don't even know, what, is, what language is this in? What, what is it saying? Nehemiah? Why is there two chapters of names in this book? What could God be saying to me through this, this chapter? And that's really true of all of our experience as it was true of the Israelites. The Israelites had to come down from that mountaintop. And when they came down from that mountaintop, 
they came down to the valley. Because all of us live in the valley. We can't stay on the mountaintop. We can't live up there. Moses, when he went up and received the Ten Commandments, couldn't stay there. He had to come down to the people. And we have to come down as well. And that's where the challenge of living out our faith is. It's not in the mountaintop. The mountaintop is easy to live out our faith. Things are good. You know, awesome. Everything's fine. But in the valley, our valley is the city. In the valley is where we are challenged to live out our faith. And in the valley, it's hard because there's not inspiration in the valley. You know, our daily lives are not often filled with a ton of inspiration. You know, often we experience troubles, frustrations, you know, deadlines, tests, um, issues with friends, issues with our relationships, issues with our spouses, issues with our kids, issues with our work and our businesses, whatever it might be. And those things really, you know, they're our focus, and they really should be. They're the stuff of life. But that's also where the challenge of living out our faith is. It's in the valley. That's where the test of our faith is, in the valley. And we see that the Israelites in the valley became careless. They became careless of their faith. They started making little compromises in their faith that led to bigger compromises, little sins and admissions that they allowed in that led to bigger sins and admissions that then eventually led them far away again from where they started. And we can see this happening in our passage. In our passage, it might not be extremely clear right away what's happening in it. But we see in our passage that the people of Israel were still reading the scriptures aloud. We read that some weeks ago about how they all stopped, thousands of them, and asked the prophet Ezra to read the the law of God, the first five books of the Bible. And they were apparently still doing this because we read that they were reading the scriptures when it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. And reading this, you know, from our modern context, we could say, well, that's discriminatory. What are they doing? There's not equal opportunity for everybody in this temple. But really what's happening here is they're protecting worship. The Ammonites and the Moabites were idol worshipers. So what the commandment is saying here is there should not be idols in the temple. If there are people worshiping other gods, then that pollutes the worship of Israel. You know, Ruth was a Moabite, and she was led into the temple to worship. So people who wanted to worship were welcomed in if they wanted to worship the one God. But if they wanted to worship idols, they were prohibited. So we see this this commandment, don't let the Ammonites and the Moabites in because they're worshiping idols. And then we see the response is very clear. As soon as the people heard the law, they were separated from all of Israel, all of those who were foreign. So we see that the people right away, they responded. They're like, okay, the law says this, I'm doing this. And this, we could almost see this as like an example of obedience. Well, they did what they should. You know, they followed God. They were obedient. But there's a problem in this passage. I don't know if you noticed it when we were reading it. And the problem comes in the next verse. In the next verse we read, Eliashib, the priest, who is appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who is related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber. 
Anyone remember who Tobiah was, if you've been with us for a while? Tobiah is the enemy, one of the big enemies of, of Nehemiah and the, the Israelites. In chapter, like back in chapter 5 or 6, Tobiah sent this army to massacre all of the Israelites. And Tobiah is an Ammonite. An Ammonite who they just read should not be admitted in the temple. But where is Tobiah? In the temple. He is given this large storeroom in the temple to do business. Do you see the problem? The people of Israel are just going, yes, we're going to follow God, we're going to do this. But they had a hole in their faith. They followed God, but they were missing something. They, followed, they said, no Ammonites. They said, yeah, no Ammonites, but then there's an Ammonite in the temple. They had a hole in their faith. And this can be true of all of us. You know, we, with the Israelites, it's not as if they were bad, like suddenly said, we're, worship, we're leaving the temple, we're not going to be following God. They didn't do any of that. They were... They were good. They looked like good religious people. They they still were reading the Bible. They were still going to temple to worship, just like us. They were good people. You know, when we we are here and all of you, I go, wow, you're great. There's nothing like, you know, huge. We're not carrying any signs on all of us that says, yes, I'm a terrible sinner. Look at me. We all try to be pretty good people, like good, religious, thoughtful followers of Christ. But Nehemiah is kind of reminding the people of Israel here that though you can be the most spiritual person, the the most thoughtful follower of Christ, you can still be sinning and not even realizing it. That's what was happening with the Israelites. They were sinning and they didn't even realize it. Or they had turned a blind eye to it. They had become dead to their sin. There was a hole in their faith. Little sins became bigger sins. Smaller compromises became larger compromises until they had wandered away and they did not even realize it. And that's a challenge for us in the valley. We all are in the valley right now. Maybe some of you are on a mountaintop. But I think most of us are probably in the valley right now. You know, it's right after midterms for our students. You know, uh, for some of you in work, the holidays are coming. It's a hard time of year. For all of us who have kids and families... Holidays can bring up stresses and struggles and worries. So we're all in the midst of the valley in some way or another. And the challenge of us in the valley is to be aware of our sin. To be aware of how sin can creep in. Even if we're living out perfectly good and religious lives, how sin can creep in and it can warp us it can turn us away, it can deaden us, and it can make us blind to what God is doing and what we're doing as well. So today, as a way of thinking about faith in the valley, we're going to look at the two types of sin that this passage brings out. Even though Nehemiah is talking about Ammonites and Moabites, remember, he's got a purpose for this chapter. The purpose is to warn. And he says... uh, a certain historical statements about the Ammonites and Moabites that bring out two different types of sin. So we're going to look at these so that we can be aware of our own sin as well and also turn to God for our hope in the midst of sin. 
So we see this little passage written between verse 1 and verse 3 that, that is filled with historical context and also helps us understand kind of what Nehemiah is talking about concerning sin. We read that for they did not uh, meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned it, the curse into a blessing. Now again, this passage may be like, I don't know what this is saying. I don't know, I, I don't know what this is referring to. But it's referring to the history of the Moabites and the Ammonites. The Moabites and the Ammonites were, pe- were tribes that lived in the area in Canaan where Jerusalem, where Israel, the people of Israel had come into. Moses had led them from the wilderness into a land that they could settle in. And there were all these tribes, and these tribes didn't necessarily want them there. So we see with the Moabites and the, the Ammonites, there were these two tribes that didn't want them there. And so in the midst of it, they both sinned in different ways. And let's look firstly at the sin of the Moabites. We see that it's found written that uh, no Ammonite or Moabite would be admitted to the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and hired Balaam. So the, the issue with the last one, with the Moabites, is that they are the ones that hired Balaam against the Israelites to curse them. So in the historical context, what happened is that the Israelites were, ma- were becoming stronger. And the tribe of Moabites thought, no, 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 these guys, we can't have these guys growing any stronger. So they thought, well, we could either, you know, go to war against them, but that would be costly. Or we could get this guy, Balaam. He is this prophet, well known for having a good record of when he curses people, they get cursed. They are destroyed. And so they, they, they hire him to come and curse him. But Balaam can't curse the Israelites. Every time he tries to curse them, he gives them blessings instead. So this is an example of sins of commission. A sin of commission, co means together, and mission means to a plan, a vision, a duty, a charge. So a sin of commission is something that you do. It's an active participation in something that is wrong or sinful. The Moabites sinned, had a sin of commission in trying actively to hurt the Israelites. And our sins of commission are also the same. You know, there are times when we actively disobey. James 4.17 says that we knew the good and we didn't do it, and that was sin. And so sins of commission are when you actively know something is not good or right, and you still do it anyway. And so sins of commission can be anything from, you know, uh, disobedience to God, disobedience in relationships. It can be disobedience uh, in uh, the ways that you treat your coworkers, the way that you treat church members. There's all kinds of sins of commission, and we know these. These are fairly obvious. But what they do to us, the effect of sins of commission, is deadness. We see throughout the scripture that the, the description of sin, especially these active disobediences, are deadness. That they just kind of make us dead to God and others. We forget who God is. We forget God's love. We forget our responsibility to other people, uh, to love our neighbors ourselves. It's just dead. It's like, 
you know, the calluses on my fingers. You know, for all you musicians, you've got calluses. I feel like I have to read, keep redeveloping mine every week because I'm like, I don't play for a few weeks and then I'm back on. But calluses, like I can take a pin and prick myself on my callus and it won't hurt because it's just dead skin. It's dead skin piled up on dead skin on dead skin and it makes it that you can play. And that's the same thing with sins of commission is they become these calluses on our heart so that the more we do them and especially the more we justify them. Oh, it's not so bad. No, that's okay. Oh, everybody else is doing it. It's not a big deal. The more we do that, the more we just become deadened to God and deadened to others. But that's not the only kind of sin that we see in here. And the other type of sin is actually harder to see. And it's also harder for us to recognize and to kind of do something about. And these are what's called sins of omission. Commission and omission. And the sins of omission come from the Ammonites. So we see that, you know, the, the Moabites were uh, guilty of cur- trying to curse the Israelites. But the Ammonites, we see, did something different. And we see it in the, the yellow. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water. So they didn't do anything. They just didn't do something. That was their sin. Historically, at this time, and we read this in Numbers uh, and Deuteronomy, the people of Israel, Israel were desperate. They were hungry, they were thirsty, living in a desert land. And so they would go to these tribes and they would try to buy food and water. And the Ammonites said, no, no, no. You cannot buy anything from us. Though they were in need, they can't buy anything from them. And they also said, you can't even touch our wells. You can't eat an apple from our orchards. Nothing. Nothing. You can't take any of it. And they, they basically shooed them out of, of their land. And so what they did is they didn't do anything. They didn't, you know, do violence against them. They just, it's what they didn't do that mattered. And that's what sins of omission are. To omit or leave something out. Sins of omission are not doing what is right or good. It is passive disobedience. And what really sins of omission are is they're blind spots. There are blind spots in our life. You know, for those of you who drive, you know what a blind spot is. And for some reason in my car, I get caught with these all the time. You're on the road, you look in your mirror, you go, oh, there's nobody there. And then you start turning and someone's beeping at you because you didn't see them, but you're, try- you're almost turning into them and getting in a car accident. And that's a blind spot. There's something there, but you're not seeing it. And that's what sins of omission are. They're blind spots. You don't see it, but it's happening in your life. You know, think of Israel at that time. Before Nehemiah came and called them out about having Tobiah in the temple, nobody cared. Nobody had a problem with it. It took Nehemiah to come and say, hey, look at what you guys are doing. And they're like, what? We're not doing anything. Oh, Tobiah, he's just there. He's hanging out. They didn't even realize what was going on with them. They had a blind spot. Something was there, but they didn't see it. And that's the same with sins of omission for us as well. They're blind spots. They are there, but we don't see it. And so what these could be, are there, there can be many things. You know, if you don't have faith in Christ today, a blind spot for you could be faith. God is saying, I'm the Lord, and my son is here to save you. But you don't receive it. 
You don't receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior. You don't bow down to him as the Lord of your life. That's a blind spot. It's a lack of faith. Or it could be for us a lack of confession and repentance. There are sins that we're doing, but we're not repenting of them. We're not even acknowledging them. It's not that we're actively doing something. We're just not actively repenting. We're just allowing things to happen. If you're angry at someone or frustrated at someone and you do nothing about it, that's a sin of, co- of omission. You're not acting, but the not acting is not making things better. It's a sin of omission. Could be a lack of hope and gratitude. You know, cynicism is, is a sin of omission often. Just if I'm cynical to the world, if I have no hope, that is a lack of gratitude. I'm, I'm not doing anything. I'm just omitting gratitude from my life and thankfulness from my life. Could be a lack of understanding. I choose not to understand others. I make judgments and assumptions, and I choose not to give people a second chance or, or a second guess. I just live by those assumptions. That can be a sin of omission as well. A lack of obedience. Just not doing what I know I should do, sin of omission. A lack of love, not caring in the ways that I should. You know, the, the uh, Ammonites in our passage lost an opportunity. They had just an opportunity to bless but they lost it. They missed it because of their sin. And so that's kind of uh, what sins of omission are. There's this blind spots in our life. And th- these omissions happen often in the valley. That's part of life in the valley is that we sin more than we know. That we sin in ways that we don't even understand. You know, Tim Keller always famously says that we're worse than we know. And sins of omission remind us that we're worse than we know. That you're sinning in ways that you don't even understand right now. <laughs> like, we are, we are uh, disobeying God in, in ways that we don't even realize. We have these blind spots we're not even looking at right now. And in our passage, we see that Nehemiah doesn't give any, like, ten steps of defeating sins of omission and commission. This is a historical reminder to the Israelites of sin. So they can understand sin and be aware of it. And also we see that this is a reminder of sin. When we understand sin and see sin, we're not necessarily supposed to do something right about it. We're supposed to understand it and recognize it for what it is. And that is what Nehemiah here is just counseling his readers to do, is just recognize your sin. But he also leaves them with hope. He doesn't leave them uh, with nothing. He leaves them with hope. And it's in the form of, uh, in this description of Balaam, he says... They hired Balaam to call a curse down upon them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. Now that one little statement gives us an insight into the character of God. God is a God that turns curses into blessings. If you look through the whole narrative of Israel's from from Genesis, from Abraham, all the way to the, the end of the prophets you will see this constant narrative that God takes the curses of people's sin and his people's sins and he turns it into blessings. And the ultimate uh, kind of fruition of this is Jesus Christ. Next week we start Advent, which is this preparation of, uh, for Christmas. And in Advent, one of the, the promises or the uh, descriptions of who this little baby is going to grow up to be is that this baby will forgive them of their sins. 
That's what God sent his only son, Jesus, Lord of Lord, into the world to do, is to forgive us of our sins. God is determined to turn curses into blessings. And God is victorious in turning curses into blessings. So what we're called to understand is we're called to understand the depth of our sin, firstly. That we are sinful in every way. Charles Spurgeon describes it like this. He says, as salt flavors every drop of the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. So we're to reflect upon this to go, you know what? We are worse than we know. But we also see this blessing in here. That God is a God of blessings. That he is blessing you. And and in Jesus Christ, he has blessed you because he has freed you from the curse of sin and death. So today, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you can trust that though you sin more than you even realize, that you are saved from your sin through Jesus. You are saved from the sins you commit now. You are saved of the sins of your past. And you're saved from the sins of your future. Jesus Christ himself stood in the place. He was your substitute. He took the punishment that was yours for your sin. And now you receive the blessings of his sacrifice in our life. Paul wrote this. He said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, But Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may be resting in me. Perfection is never the standard of the Christian life. If you feel that to be a good Christian, you have to be perfect, your life in Christ is going to be terrible, honestly. It is just going to be one disappointment after the other. You're going to be constantly feel guilty and shameful because you'll never be able to do it. It will be a curse to you if you think that you have to be perfect to be a Christian, that God will not accept you unless you're perfect. But the standard of the Christian life is not perfection. The standard of the Christian life is weakness. Paul says, I boast in my weakness. When I am weak, I am strong. And that's the blessing for us as well. When you're weak enough to admit your helplessness, when you're weak enough to admit that you need God, you need God every day and every hour because you're sinning in ways you don't even understand. You have sins of commission, but you also have sins of omission. You have blind spots. When you realize that, then there comes this freedom. Suddenly, I can ask for help. Suddenly, I can receive forgiveness. Suddenly, I can love others as well. Because there's no, there's, there's no games anymore. There's nothing, I, I can just love because I'm weak. I can love others in their weakness as well. There's this whole freedom because... When we're weak, we are strong. So I encourage you, in the valley of your faith, in the midst of the business and busyness of your life, to simply ponder your sin. To ponder that you are worse than you know. When you recognize sins of commission and omission in your life, come to God. Just give him your your sin. Because God is a God in the midst of your weakness gives you strength. As you repent, confess and repent of your sin, God fills you with his grace. God shows you how much he loves you. And he leads you to new life. So understand your sins of commission and omission. And rejoice 
in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you that in you we have nothing to fear. We don't have to fear sin. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear the devil because there's nothing to fear because you're with us always, Lord God. Lord God, as we come to you today, as we reflect upon our baptism, as we go into Thanksgiving and reflect upon what we're grateful for, Lord, help us to know that we have nothing to fear. That with you, we can rejoice in our weakness. Our weakness can be strength. When we see our sin, we can gladly and surely repent because you are with us always. Thank you, Lord God, for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your blessing. Thank you for your presence in this place. Amen. Let's stand together and as a response to God's goodness in the midst of our sin, let's, let's affirm that by remembering we have nothing to fear, that God is with us, that he is saving us so we can come to him in joy.